So yes, I have a Boston Red Sox jersey on today. I had told you all to wear something you love. So even though they're not having a great year, I still love my Red Sox. Um, and I like this jersey in particular. Uh, they, they, a couple years ago, they created what's called the City Connect jersey, a jersey that has something to do with the city. And these are the colors of the Boston Marathon. And so it's connected not just to the marathon, but particularly to that uh, sad day several years ago where they had the Boston Marathon bombing. And uh, so they chose those colors. And um, coincidentally, it also happens to be the colors for Ukraine, so I just thought it was awesome. Uh, not the only favorite thing I wore. I wore two favorite things today. I couldn't decide. I couldn't wear just a T-shirt, so I have this T-shirt. It says, The Beat Goes On. So this was my uh, recovery from heart attacks uh, t-shirt. So I'm partial to that. So enough about wearing bright colors. Um, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We are in the last of our summer series on biblical priorities, first things first. And this is the last one. Next week we will begin uh, with First and Second Peter, and that will be our series for the fall. So we're in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Please listen carefully, because this is God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of Revelation to learn more about loving you and loving others. We know that there is a lot we need to learn from what you say to the church in Ephesus so it can have full impact in our church. We know we're a lot more like this church than we want to admit. We struggle with the same sins, the same temptations, the same idols, the same issues, the same problems, the same lack of faith. Lord, we know that soft words produce hard people, and hard words produce soft people. We want to be people who are soft and kind and loving with each other, so bring the hard words. So Lord, teach us to remember those things we did at first, and to repent because we don't love you and we don't love each other as we should. Through it all, help us to meet you in this book. Help us to see Jesus as we see him in these words. So by your spirit, open this letter to us, and as always, for this we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning, 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, as some of you know, uh, I'm a big fan of reading mysteries and spy thriller novels. I only read six on vacation, plus a couple other sort of general literature things. You like mysteries? Very good. Well, one of the mystery series that Joanne and I have enjoyed is the Commissario Guido Brunetti series by Donna Leone. It's set in Venice, Italy. Uh, Guido Brunetti is a police commissario. It's like a police captain in our country, high in rank, but not yet a police chief. And he gets a lot of strange cases that no one else wants. And he doesn't always solve them, but he always gets justice. Although usually it's a very subtle and understated way. In the most recent book, uh, and 31st in the series, he is asked to look into an Italian charity designed to give medical aid to people in Belize, Central America. But they fear that the charity is being used to launder money for criminals. So Brunetti begins the investigation by discussing the case with Espetore, which is Inspector Lorenzo Vianello. He's asked him to look into the charity. So Vianello tells him, I found the name of the charity. And he said, which is? He said, Belize nel cuore, which is loosely translated as Belize in your heart. Brunetti put his right hand over his eyes and sat quietly for a moment. And then he said, I suppose that's what you have to do. Make people put Belize in their hearts. A confused Vianello said, excuse me? But it's just... Marketing, Brunetti said, using a word that's now as omnilingual as taxi or pajama. But it's a charity, Vianello said. She goes, it's even more necessary then, Brunetti answered. And Vianello said nothing for a long time. And then he surprised Brunetti by saying, Four Paws Rescue, Happy Paws Shelter, Best Friend Refuge. What are those, Brunetti asked. I just made them up. They're names for dog shelters. And if the places that save dogs can have names like that, then why not those that save people? They give the same suggestion of happiness and virtue. And then after a reflective pause, he said, or maybe it's just a declaration of the truth. You have to have strong feelings about people to be motivated to try to save them. You hear that last line? You have to have strong feelings about people to be motivated to try to save them. What kind of motivation does one need to try to save people? Well, to put it in biblical terms, when we talk about trying to save others, we understand salvation to go beyond this present world to include hopes for divine deliverance and resurrection in the world to come. And there's lots of Bible passages, some of the key passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In the New Testament, we have Acts 16. You're familiar with this. We read it every time we have a baptism. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Ephesians 2, again, well-known passage. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One more, Titus 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out us on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So those are just a few uh, verses from a, actually a lengthy list of scripture that speaks of salvation. So back to our question. What kind of motivation does one need to try to save people? Well, the simple answer is love. After all, that's what we read in Matthew 22 when a Pharisee tried to test Jesus. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Therefore, it would be reasonable then to think that in order to try to save people, in the biblical sense, by grace, through faith in Christ, our motivation depends on how much we've internalized the great commandment to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because ultimately, the obligation to try and save people, your neighbors, what we call evangelism, depends on whether or not you actually love them. Now, that's a long way around to get to our text for today, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, where the church in Ephesus, for a lot of reasons, many of which will sound awfully familiar, have given up on loving people into the kingdom of God. They're not loving other people because they're not loving God and they're not loving each other. And when that happens, we can expect to see Christ come to the church. And if you have the uh, sermon outline uh, every week uh, online on our website, you can get the whole manuscript and you can get the outline. And that would be the first blank uh, in the outline. Christ comes to the church. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. He walks among the seven lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand. The same Jesus now comes to us with words of commendation, critique, and counsel found in the seven letters addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor. You want to read all of them, you can go back to our sermon series on Revelation. I think that was in 09. It's also on the website. But the Christ of the church in the first century is the same Christ of the church in the 21st century. And he still walks among the lampstands. And the lampstands are symbolic of the work of God's Holy Spirit in the churches, 
who reminds us of the church's function to be light bearers to a fallen world. Where the lampstand is present, Jesus is present. And where Jesus is present, the Holy Spirit is active, bringing God's light to the world which lives in darkness. And the first church to receive one of these letters is Ephesus. Now, it's natural to begin with the church in Ephesus because it's sort of the chief city, and its church is kind of like the chief church. Ephesus is the first seaport of Asia Minor, and it's home to the temple of Artemis, called Diana by the Romans. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, if we could back up 40 years from when Revelation was written, we go back to the book of Acts. In Acts 18, we see Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos all ministered here in Ephesus. We know from Acts 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul spent three years here building the church. That ministry came to an end after certain Jews tried to uh, do an exorcism of a demon in the name of Jesus, only to have the demon-possessed man turn on them and beat him to a pulp. And as a result of that incident, uh, there were so many occultists in the area who came to faith in Christ that it wasn't long before those who made a living selling religious trinkets associated with the worship of uh, Artemis began to see their thriving business dry up. And as the account goes, the local merchants, the worshipers of Artemis, formed a mob. They tried to get to Paul to harm him, possibly kill him, and Paul had to leave town. So later, Paul places Timothy there, and he has an extensive ministry guarding the gospel in that place. We were in uh, 1 Timothy last week. We saw that. Paul wrote them a letter during his imprisonment in Rome, the book of Ephesians, as well as the two letters to Timothy. And then later in the first century, the apostle John lived in Ephesus. He made it the center of his ministry. Most likely, uh, the gospels and epistles were sent to this church first. They were probably written there while he was in Ephesus. No doubt there's many in that congregation who received this letter who knew John personally. Some of them probably knew him well. Perhaps there was a number there that could even remember back to when the Apostle Paul was among them. So this church had Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and John. Clearly they had the most successful pastoral search committee in the history of Christianity. Ephesus is a religious center, a political center, a trade center, and an occult center. If there's any city that needs spiritual discernment, it's Ephesus. And they're going to be commended by Christ for having just that discernment. The letter begins with a reminder of the authority of the one who is speaking to them through the pen of the Apostle John. Each of these seven letters follows a pattern. Each letter begins with an address to the angel of the church, followed by some identification of the Lord Jesus that's drawn from the vision of the exalted Christ in chapter 1. So here he's described as the one who has seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus is Lord of the church, and he walks among his congregations with a word of blessing and a word of warning. He's aware of their circumstances. He knows what they've had to endure. He knows the struggles they face. He knows their sins and their failures. And he tells them that he knows all this when Christ commends the church, verses 2 and 3. Christ commends the church. 
in each letter, the next statement is one where the Lord tells him he knows their spiritual condition. And so verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So Christ, who is the first and chief pastor of the church, has an intimate knowledge of his churches. He knows their strengths and their weaknesses. And the church in Ephesus isn't the only one who's been troubled by false teachers, men who laid claim to some position of authority in the church in order to gain a following. But the Ephesians had put the teaching and the way of life of these strangers to the test. And they compared them uh, both to the apostles, um, both their, their teaching and their way of life to the apostles, And when they failed the test, they closed their ears to them. The Ephesians have faithfully persevered. They haven't tolerated wicked men, probably referring to the removal of those who embraced the pagan immorality that surrounded them. They tested all those who claimed to be apostles and found their claims and their teaching to be false. And after carefully examining these apostolic pretenders... The Ephesians exposed their evil ways, prevented them from getting a forum in the church, and removed them from the church. So Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their faithfulness, their doctrine, their purity, and their perseverance. But they have a problem in this hard-working, tireless, enduring, discerning, truth-loving, lie-hating congregation has a problem. And so Christ critiques the church, verse 4. Perhaps the most intriguing question in our text today is that posed by this statement, that the church in Ephesus had abandoned its first love. Verse 4, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. What is the love that the Ephesian Christians had lost? Some would argue that uh, what is meant is the Ephesian Christians had lost their love for Christ. That was their first love. They were still doing the right things, but they were no longer motivated by devotion to Jesus. Others, however, argue that what's lost in Ephesus is brotherly love in their zeal for doctrinal purity, a good thing in and of itself, and in a zeal they're commended for twice in this letter. But they've allowed a critical spirit to grow up among them. And this congregation has had to defend the faith over and over and over again against all comers. And yet these doctrinal battles then, and they do this today too, seem to have produced resentment and bitterness and a judgmental spirit within the church. They've become overly critical, not only questioning doctrine, but motive. The church has become contentious and negative. Now, this is what Reformed people are often accused of. And while it's not entirely true, it's not entirely false either. There are PCA churches that could be accurately described as judgmental and contentious. We've seen that problem addressed elsewhere in the New Testament. We've seen it enough ourselves to know how reasonable an interpretation this could be. Now, in the finest commentary available on Revelation, a monumental study about this thick, by Dr. Gregory Beale. 
he concludes that all seven letters are really about the same thing. And they set before us one mark of an ideal church, which is bearing witness to Christ in the pagan world around us. He argues that verse 4 refers neither to brotherly love nor to the love of Christ, but to the love of a lost world. And specifically is sharing the gospel and bearing witness to others, which these believers loved to do when they first became followers of Christ. And he points out that the identification of Christ at the beginning of the letter is one who walks among the lampstands. And that the threat, should they fail to repent, is that he would remove their lampstand. He's speaking to these Christians, in other words, as light bearers. He points out that the entire thought refers back to the Lord's remark about a lamp being set on a stand so it gives light to the house and about Christians being the light of the world. So which one of these interpretations is correct? I'm not sure. I actually don't think it makes much difference as all of these interpretations naturally fit together in the Christian life. There is no true love of others that doesn't originate in the love of God. And anyone whose heart is full of God's love will love both those inside the church and bring Christ to those outside the church. After all, just we read in our responsive reading this morning, I'm just going to read a couple verses there from 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Pretty well sums it up. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he wants you to do. That's what he wants me to do. That's what he wants the church to do. So whatever type of love, whatever happened in Ephesus, Jesus says would happen often. He actually told us that in Matthew 24. He said, and many false prophets, this is an issue they're having, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. That's what Jesus says, Matthew 24. So Jesus, as the king and head of the church, is also the wise counselor and shepherd of their souls. He knows that you have to have strong feelings about people, feelings that come from loving God and loving others, if you're going to be motivated to try to save them. And it is his love for us and for them that will motivate us to offer his salvation to others. After all, he promises the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, as a witness to all nations. But he doesn't just live, leave them with this stinging critique. Then he goes on and counsels the church, verses 5 through 7, Christ counsels the church. It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So Jesus is exhorting this church, pleading with this congregation to go back and do the things they did at first. Now let me ask, when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, what were some of the things you did then? I don't know about all of you, but for a lot of you, you have shared you couldn't get enough of the Scripture. You devoured the Bible, reading it over and over again. Some of you couldn't wait to fellowship with other believers, to pray with other believers, to worship with other believers. And for a lot of you, you couldn't stop talking about Jesus. He changed your life. And now Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. These things aren't happening like they used to. And because of that, our love isn't all that noticeable anymore. Now, we can critique the culture and argue the fine points of theology, but sometimes we can come across as a bunch of unloving jerks. And apparently, Jesus thinks that being an unloving Christian is an oxymoron. Those two words shouldn't go together. Jesus takes this loss of love so seriously. He says they've fallen so far that he threatens drastic action, the removal of his blessing, the removal of his presence, the removal of his lampstand from this congregation. Remember, lampstand's a symbol of his presence, power of the Holy Spirit, enabling this church to be light to an unbelieving world. And he's threatening to turn off the light. So first he commended them, then he critiqued them, and now he commends them again. The second commendation comes uh, again it's concerning false teachers one particular group of people they're able to defend the church against are the Nicolaitans and Jesus says you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate later on in the book of Revelation you would see this group is compared to two Old Testament figures Balaam and Jezebel both of whom sought to lure Israel away from the true God by tempting the people to adopt pagan practices which are forms of idolatry and immorality. So for those of you who are still having kids, don't name them Balaam or Jezebel. Okay, not good names. Um, And since the name Nicolaitans actually means conquering the people, it's not clear if this is a formal name of the group or a description that's placed on them by Jesus. It is also not a good name. And Jesus commends them for hating what this group does, which he also hates. Are there groups out there today whom we ought to hate? That's used pretty harshly in our world today. One of the biggest criticisms you could get is that you are filled with hate or you have hate speech. Often without regard for the content of whatever it is that you said. Let's be clear here. Because he says... he. Uh, he, he also hates them. He uses the word. But the text doesn't say we're to hate the people of the group. It specifically says to hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We're to hate what they teach. We're to hate what they're trying to do. We're to hate how they're misleading people. We're to hate their idolatry. We're to hate their immorality. We're to hate everything they're trying to accomplish. We're just not told to hate them. 
Well, that's real important for us as we deal with these things today. We deal with all kinds of stuff today. There's all sorts of false religions and false teachers out there. We have other religions like Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and we're not supposed to accommodate their teaching. It's false. We have other spiritualities, some of which are based in those religions, some of which are just plain pagan, like the whole New Age movement, which is various occult groups. We have Christian cult groups, false churches that have twisted the scriptures to create unbiblical doctrines that lead people astray, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Unitarians. We have more people being led astray by our culture's fascination with alternative sexualities. There are whole movements to attract Christians into these new ideologies, and inevitably it leads them away from the faith. We have false teachers within Christianity, teachers who preach a health and wealth gospel, teachers who preach salvation by works, teachers who preach faith without repentance. There are lots of false teachers out there. Let's go back to Commissario Guido Brunetti for a moment. In this latest book, he's reflecting on people's inability to trust any explanation for any event. Because they're always asking, what really happened. And Brunetti suspects this inability to trust is directly related to the loss of faith so common for so many people today. He says, people who used to believe in God realized they didn't really believe it anymore, but had nothing else to believe in. God had proved very difficult to replace. There was the wealth brought by the economic boom, but subsequent events had proven that wealth was not eternal. There were new political parties, but everyone knew they were recycled and hardly new. There was wellness, Pilates, yoga, a sprinkling of new cults, but they seemed to give little in return for all the time and money a person invested in them. God had filled so much space with so little effort. Sound familiar? Let's not forget also that there's a lot of people within the church who aren't actually true believers in Christ. In their day-to-day life, they don't look or act any different from the rest of the culture. Yes, they attend church, they own Bibles, they try to behave, they give money, blah, 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 blah. But theologian David Wells wrote something 28 years ago. It was very controversial at the time. It's proven to be somewhat prophetic. He said... God has become weightless for the masses of today's alleged believers. God rests upon us so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. These people profess to believe in God, but they have no relationship with Jesus. And our churches, particularly in America are full of them. Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, even Presbyterian. False believers whom Jesus himself doesn't recognize. And if you read Matthew 25, you can see for yourself what he has to say for them. And it's, it's more hard words. So the issue of standing against false teaching is still a very real issue today. And then a specific promise is given to each of the churches and to all of them a general promise of reward is given to those who overcome. We see in verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
John doesn't define what he means by conquers. But if we went through the rest of the book of Revelation, it would become clear that overcoming and conquering means uh, remaining faithful to Christ and to the cause of Christ because, again, he knows that you have to have strong feelings about people to be motivated to try to save them. And sometimes that means standing in defiance of the opposition and the temptation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the reward mentioned at the end of each of the seven letters is eternal life, described in some familiar image. And so here we have this image of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And again, we'll find that at the very end of the book in the description of the new Jerusalem uh, given in chapter 22. Jesus' word of counsel and his warning about the removal of his lampstand is not the final word to the church. He reminds them it's not too late. Repentance is possible. The church can go back and did what it did at the beginning and not come under Christ's judgment. The command to repent is followed by the promise of the gospel. And he promises access to a far better tree, the tree of life, which yields endless delight and eternal life. So before we finish, we have to ask, what would he say to us? What would he say to us if he came to our church, if we got, you know, the eighth letter? What would he say? I mean, these believers were commended for much. And so important was what they did, so crucial to faithful Christian testimony and to the welfare of the church. When the Lord writes the letter uh, to the church of Pergamum, he threatens them with his wrath precisely for failing to do what the Ephesians did so well. So loyalty to Christ is not achieved by reaching a certain virtue, a certain ratio of virtue to vice. It's not a numerical calculation of hard work and fidelity to the truth which will make up for our lack of love. It's a very subtle temptation, which I think we're all uh, subject to from time to time. I think all churches are subject to it all the time. You know, we know we're failing to honor the Lord in some area of life, but we take comfort from the fact that you know, but we're doing so much better over here. We never admit it, even to ourselves, but it's like we're counting up our merits and our demerits. And the Lord puts a shuddering stop to this comparing of our strengths and weaknesses and trying to take comfort from our strength by setting them against our weaknesses. You know, this isn't so bad because I do this really well. He stops that thinking. He commends the Ephesians. They're doing well in this way and that way. But nevertheless, he threatens to remove their lampstand if they don't recover a life of love. This is a Christian church. They knew what they're supposed to do. And they're doing it. And their hard work was being done, standing up and, and fending off the false teachers. But devotion to the Lord, the love of others, having a heart for the lost, these things were slipping from their grasp. We have to ask, are we deficient in love? I think the answer is, of course we are. And the way to make up that deficiency, the way to rekindle that love, as the Lord explicitly tells us, repent and do the works you did at first. That's the challenge. Think back, what do we do at first? We have to get back to the Bible, reading it over and over again. 
We have to get back to regular fellowship with other believers, praying often with other believers. A plug for the community groups and Bible studies here. Meet with them, pray with them, read the Bible with them. Worship that doesn't just go through the motions. Most of you have been through that. You have done that. Life is overwhelming. You're harassed. You show up, but you just kind of go through the motions because there's so much else going on in your life. And we often pray that we can set aside all the concerns of week, of, the, of our lives and everything, and just focus on Jesus for this time. And, of course, talking about Jesus is the one who changed your life. Doing those things we did at first. Bible, believers, telling people about Jesus. That'll bring back the love. The love for God, the love for others, the love for the lost. Because, again, he knows that you need to have strong feelings about people to be motivated to try to save them. That's why we need constant reminders of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Every time someone is baptized, we remember that Christ washed our sins from us with his precious blood. Why? Because he loved us. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, which we will next week, we remember that Christ's body and blood were sacrificed for our salvation because he loved us. Every funeral we go to, we remember that Christ saved us from sin and sorrow and one day will raise us from the grave to serve him in eternal glory because he still loves us. And we need those reminders because they serve as the great revelation of the love of Christ for his own. <clears throat> I have all kinds of hopes for all of you. Probably the longer I'm here, the more hopes I have. And I've been here a long time. I want you to live happy lives. I want you to enjoy your marriages and your family. I want you to have good jobs and, and find yourself able to pay your way through the world and adequately provide for your loved ones. But more than all of that, I hope you'll be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that no one will ever doubt where you stand and to whom you've committed your life. I hope that hard work for the sake of Jesus and his church will be characteristic of your life. I hope that yours will be a life of love. Devoted to both loving God and loving your neighbor because he still loves you. And finally, I want you to eat from the tree of life. And to that end, I hope and pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will overcome every obstacle that stands between you and God. Now, I know that's a tall order. Only the king can make it happen. But the good news is this. The king is coming. Amen. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation that it unveils to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take seriously what is written here and let these words change our lives. Lord Jesus, I don't want to be known as the pastor of a church filled with theologically correct but unloving jerks. Please don't let that happen. 
May your Holy Spirit have his way with us starting now. Help us to remember those things we did at first and repent because we don't love you and we don't love each other and we don't love the lost as much as we should. Give us strong feelings about people. Help us to love them so that we might be motivated to try to save them. And we ask that you would do this in the name of the one who walks among the lampstands, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.